Hello and welcome to Centre for Mental Health's podcast, where we explore ideas around mental health, equality and social justice. I'm Thea Joshi and this podcast is a place where we talk to people with lived experience of mental health problems or people working in a specific area of mental health or some of our own team to discuss how we're engaged in the fight for equality in mental health. I recently caught up with Poppy Jaman OBE, so she's the Chief Exec of the City Mental Health Alliance and she's the founding CEO of Mental Health First Aid in England and she's also one of our trustees here at the centre. I have to say it was a real joy to get to chat to and to listen to Poppy, hearing about her own lived experience of mental health problems, growing up in a Bengali Muslim family and about some of the individuals who supported her at pivotal points in her life. We discussed the root causes of mental ill health and why we need to stop thinking about systems of change as immovable things kind of out there in the ether, rather than being made up of people who can make change happen. We also chatted about the things that Poppy does to maintain her mental health and look after herself. Hope you enjoy the show. So I've got to say, I am really excited to be here with Poppy Jaman today. Uh, she is the Chief Exec of the City Mental Health Alliance, and she's also a trustee of Centre for Mental Health. So welcome, Poppy. Hi, Alethea. Thank you very much. So I am really looking forward to this conversation, but I have to say I'm a little daunted because I know that you have been interviewed by the likes of Fern Cotton and Bryony Gordon on their podcast. <laughs> Um, so obviously that was all leading up to this moment, the pinnacle of your podcast <laughs> journey, you know. Um, Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> <laughs> You're so kind. Um, so Poppy, you were also the founding CEO of Mental Health First Aid England. Uh, you obviously have an OBE and a generally a highly respected advisor advocate and campaigner for mental health and there's so much that I want to hear from you about so I'm just going to dive in and ask you very generally if you maybe have to tell us a bit more about your journey up until this point in your own words so yeah let me let me sort of go back um back well almost 26 years so I experienced my first uh, episode of mental ill health as, as in the form of postnatal depression. But actually, Leith, if I, if I go back now to my teens, I recognise that my mental health struggles probably started in my mid to late teens, but it wasn't picked up by my family. It wasn't, in fact, it was partly the environment that I was in. So, you know, I grew up as a British Bengali Muslim uh, woman, young girl, and at that time there was a lot of discrimination, a lot of gender discrimination. And anyway, long story short, I ended up having a forced marriage that then led to even more exacerbated mental health struggles. And it really appeared when the medical service kicked in when you have a baby because you've got so much support mm. around you. Yeah. So, so that was my first sort of experience of anything mental health. And that then led to, I guess, an enormous curiosity, but also looking at family members in a different light, like particularly my mom and dad, thinking about the fact that they migrated to this country, they would have been, uh, they would have had it extreme. We know there was lots of examples I've talked about at other Centre for Mental Health events about racism, etc. So I guess all of those issues, societal issues that the centre is working so hard to raise the profile of and bring equity to, 
I, I'm the lived experience of that. But having said that, I've got, I'm a, you know, a middle-class privileged woman now in a very senior job with lots of influence, status, uh, respect, financial resources. So I, I'm no longer there. And I guess I'm also an example of social mobility. And when equality does uh, play a strong part and allyship plays a strong part in getting people like me out of that situation into here, because you don't do that alone. It takes a whole community to raise a child. And that, that is probably sort of the beginning of, of the question that you asked. Um, yeah, so, so here I am today, uh, I have, I'm the Chief Executive of the City Mental Health Alliance. Our vision is to create mentally healthy workplaces. We've been going for a decade. I'm about to launch the global chapter of our organisation and our ambition is to be in 80 countries so that workplace mental health is completely baked in to employers' minds and, in, and, and settings and that we can never go back. That's what I would love my legacy to be once I've finished this career. Um, and I'm quite keen to retire soon. I'm knackered. <laughs> so the, the emotional labour that this stuff takes, I'm just, you know, I'd like to just prance about in sari somewhere hot if, if, if life allows. But, but look, so, so, so I guess it's been a very uh, uh, interesting and fascinating journey. And I've had lots of therapy and time to reflect on, on that journey. And, and that's why, you know, I think I'll always be campaigning for mental health, but actually nowadays I'm beginning to talk more about the root causes of mental health difficulties, hence sharing so much of my story. Gender equality matters, race equality matters, neurodiversity, awareness, equality, like all of the intersect. Without getting that bit right, we can't really prevent mental ill health and that's what the centre's work is about, which is why I have chosen to be a trustee and try and help navigate this and push it forward. Um, like I said, I want to retire soon, so <laughs> let's get it done as much as I can. Oh, thank you. We are so grateful for you being on board, literally, Bobby. So thank you for that. One thing you mentioned there was about it taking a community to raise a child and talking about that in terms of your own growth and development and where you've got to today and, and I was interested to know sort of what are some of the elements of that community for you what were some of the elements yeah that, that's a really good question and as soon as you asked that question I thought of a couple of my teachers actually so okay. I, I remember one teacher Mrs Moore taking me aside and very much recognizing that I was really struggling with home issues and you know simple things like wanting to be I was really into dancing I'm still into dancing but like you know in a, <laughs> I haven't been to a good party for a while so I'm missing that but but actually I wanted to be um I wanted to perform at, at school and because my family were uh, against sort of me staying on at school after school hours because they were, I don't know, their fear, I suppose, led that. But I experienced that as gender inequality and actually was really annoyed that I couldn't go to dance and perform, etc., etc. And I remember Mrs. Moore 
just being amazing. She sort of took me aside and after like at lunchtime, she'd make time for me to just listen to what was going on. And a few times she had picked up the phone and phoned my mum with me, not next to her at school, just explaining to my mum like why, um, what I was doing after school and, you know, wow. I wasn't wondering and going off. Yeah. So, so, yeah. so I guess what did Mrs. Moore do? She, she went over and above, she A, recognised my struggles, then went over above her school duties in order to have a conversation that would reassure my family, which meant that I could have, I could have access, my, like my girlfriends, I went to a girls' school, had access to the evening classes. That is equity work. Yeah, that's a, yeah. That's a member yeah. of the community going, and it's, it's not giving something more to, to me as a young you know as a student it was actually leveling the platform because everybody also already had permission from their parents i didn't have permission from my parents because of fear so so i think that is a really good example of what we as individuals can do in our respective jobs even though there's time pressure sometimes that one call or one that one that one act can change someone's life so I think I think that's a very good example. Um, I think in the workplace. So the reason why I'm so passionate about the workplace is my first job. So I was really struggling with my mental health. The antidepressants and medication at the time were, you know, it takes almost six months to settle into proper medication the first time you're, or many people's experiences. So it and um, so I was struggling with meds and. Um, I was struggling with the therapist because the therapist um, hadn't really had experience of working with an Asian woman who was in a marriage that she didn't want to be in and, and you know all, all the complexities that comes with that um, and I decided various other things happened but I decided to get a job and actually I got uh, my first job after the birth of my daughter in at the Citizens Advice Bureau and again my manager was just so amazing i can't remember her name now but she recognized my age the fact that i was a young mom the fact that I, there was clearly something going on in my domestic life that i wasn't talking about um and she just managed me with so much kindness that i never had to disclose my mental health struggles because i didn't know that I, I i even had to disclose back then it was just one big blur i was you know i was essentially a child with a child um but that again so compassionate leadership compassionate management in the workplace you don't have to be mental health qualified to have a good quality conversation and i guess that's when i when I led Mental Health First Aid and let, uh, up until 2018, that was my big passion there, is that everybody can have a conversation. Mental Health First Aid isn't some, you know, incredibly unique thing. It just teaches you to actually have a compassionate dialogue. And so I would say, you know, raising a child as a community, teacher, workplace. And then my health visitor, if I look about, you know, think about health she was the one that recognized that i wasn't well and she took me aside sat me down in a corner while because i'd gone to the normal clinics like you used to back in the day to have your baby weighed etc and she she 
picked up on my anxiety and then I then actually went and got a doctor and got them to see me within the hour of being there and again another intervention that was life-saving and I could go on I could go on just so many examples of throughout life that people noticed and they acted and that for me is the difference between empathy and compassion empathy is me being able to put myself in your shoes and action is when I go and do something about it and that is exactly what equity in mental health is about that it's that simple I mean that's such an encouraging story like all of those little sort of vignettes are just really like genuinely encouraging and what's interesting is that as you've said about Centre for Mental Health's work we're focusing on equality in mental health and often we're talking there about systems and systemic issues systemic inequality and I think what you're showing there as well though is that this is also there's a very human very individual level to all of the stuff that we're talking about it's not kind of system somewhere in the ether as this weird invisible force it's also just individual people making um, good decisions for driving for equity um, what I also think is really amazing in terms of timing is that we literally yesterday not when we're not when this goes out but when we're recording yesterday we just uh, launched a new report with the maternal mental health alliance about mother's mental health and specifically about integrating provision for mothers in antenatal and postnatal care with midwives and health visitors and again highlighting that role that health visitors and these physical health um, professionals complain in mother's mental health and that's so exciting to hear that that was your experience um, yeah yeah and 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 I suppose one of what the, the an observation I want to make about what you've said about systems Alethea is systems are made up of people <laughs> so unless we individually change our behavior the system isn't going to change itself so yeah. if the policy is we don't ask people about their personal lives in the workplace, for example, which essentially was, if it wasn't a written down policy, it was it was the workplace culture that we avoided talking about anything about anybody's personal lives. And actually, that's very much part of our British culture as well. And I, you know, I bridge British Bengali culture so I can really see the difference. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, and, you know, there's a the British culture is also we mustn't pry or we mustn't, you know, overstep the mark and in terms of personal questions and things. So so whether it, that's that is a system. Yeah. And that that is that is held up by me and you practicing that so unless i change my behavior then the policy in the workplace won't change that actually it's okay to ask about someone's sleep patterns and whether their kids are all right because unless you know those bits of your team members lives that they that they then you're not going to know whether performance at work is related to a skills deficit a competency issue or actually just life issues that's happening to them that you might be able to yeah. leverage a little bit. And I'll give you another example on that from my personal life. In when I was um, doing, <laughs> this is just ridiculous. I was doing my MBA and I was working for Southeast Development Centre, which was part of, which was the regional arm of the National Institute for Mental Health in England. So that was my first regional job. And it was a sort of an arm's length body of the Department of Health. And I was leading on race equality for Southeast England. So 
so I was doing that job and so so I guess it was a pretty big job and it was a massive step for me like I, I haven't got A-levels I haven't got a first degree I came from GCSEs worked my through, way through as a community development worker and then found myself in this job after a leadership program that the NHS had put in place that my line manager insisted I went on because I said to her I don't want to go to a BME mental health well why can't I just go to a normal leadership program I was so arrogant <laughs> I don't I don't think that's arrogant I think that's right but, and it, well, well I guess it was naive because what I then and she was like Poppy anybody that's gone on this leadership program has raved on about it speak to a few people that have gone to it and then I was like okay so I put in an application thinking they were, they'll never accept me anyway I've only just got GCSEs and and anyway they accepted me on this leadership program and it was the first time I was in a room of a load of black and brown people at manager or aspiring leaders because I, I lived in Portsmouth I was surrounded you know I was in the minority people like like me weren't in jobs you know most of my family well all the women in my family didn't work up until me so I was the first woman to drive in my family, the first woman to get a job. Um, so it was, so it was, um, and yeah, so coming back to going on this BME programme, I suddenly met all of these people and I was like, oh, wow, there's so much how we relate to in terms of being people of colour in our businesses, in our education. And I was just, it was such an amazing leadership programme. But that then gave me the confidence to go for, a regional job because it was at the back of that so that's the first example was this manager of mine being like you like I've 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 seen you and I've seen your potential and here's an op a door that I, I'm opening for you and we'll fund it like that you should go to this so that's one example and then sort of five years later I found myself um, working with Southeast Development Centre and but another manager Judy amazing so she was like you your cv is is doesn't reflect the job that you're doing like whatever your next career step is it's not going to happen on the basis that your cv is shit basically <laughs> so what are you going to do about that i was like well, yeah, i don't know what i'm going to do about that i've got i've got a baby at home i'm already doing this job how do i and she was like, well, fund it, what program go go and do an mba she said to me because it's a general management if you don't know what you want to do it's it will just tick all the boxes and and they gave me time off they against another manager spotting talent and be going look we're gonna we're gonna help you because you deserve an opportunity and i think with that again so going back to you know loads of people coming together to build one person up and if we all took that approach most days in our lives or like you know three days in our lives um it, it would make such a difference wouldn't it yeah but it would systems but it would change systems because if you think about it the way both of those two managers um well three of them actually were so kind to me means that i'm really kind to my team and i want to go the extra mile so what, what are we doing we're changing the system through culture yeah. um and the paperwork will follow but i think People talk about systems like it's some, like you said, like it's something out there that's just going to change it. We have to change yeah. our behaviour. 
Yeah, definitely. And I think that's such a helpful point because I think um, whilst we are completely about systems change and some of that will be out of, you know, some of our reach, I don't have the power myself to say change benefits policy at the moment, although I wish I could. But at the same time, I think it's really important for us to remember that we're not powerless, that, you know, as we said, the system isn't some weird obsolete thing out there but that actually is in all of us to change our behavior and change the systems around us and I think that's such a um for want of a better word empowering message to know that um yeah these things are within our grasp and we are all also all have a responsibility for making kind of equality and mental health a reality yeah yeah definitely and we have to put ourselves in in the shoes of our kids and if you haven't got the kids then the little people and young people that may be in your life or that you experience through media but actually we have to put ourselves sort of in those shoes and and hope that they look back at some of the stuff that we did and went god at least they tried like do you know what i mean i'd like I, I, you know, yeah. I don't know whether we'll succeed, but I think we're going to make some pretty good progress because there's a whole load of us. There's a mental health army like Sarah Hughes, you, you our organisations that while we're not going to just not change. But I think it's that it's I do want the next generation to look back and go, you know, they, they did a good job of putting us on a, yeah. on a platform like, yeah. Yeah, 100 percent. Just going right back, you mentioned um, about when you were first experiencing postnatal anxiety and depression and um, struggling with the therapist because she hadn't kind of um, supported people who were in your situation or from your background. And it's it reminded me of um, Myra Khan, who we had on the podcast a good nine months ago, who runs the Muslim Psychotherapist and Counselling Network. And we talked quite a lot about um, culturally informed responses and providing a culturally informed service and I would just love to know you know your thoughts on that and what what you think would would make the biggest difference in that area I think yeah I think you have to start quite a quite a long way up the supply chain so after the tragic murder of George Floyd and the massive Black Lives Matter movement and all of us waking up some of us being triggered to actually do better and it it was an amazing period as a CEO and as a leader in this sector to to be around because there was so much emotion which was hard but there was so much honesty, honesty and so much listening going on that actually one of the things that happened was in the workplaces so you know the city mental health lines community our members were coming to us and saying look you know we need we need to, do you know black therapists or do you know like diverse diverse therapeutic communities? And actually they were then looking at their employee assistant programs that they have for their employees who where counseling is often part of that service and going back and saying, show us who were on your books and discovering that actually quite often that, the, that it wasn't a diverse set of therapists. And so, the one massive and practical thing that came out of that movement in the workplace space is a real consciousness to therapy needing to be culturally, racially, culturally appropriate for racialized communities and minoritized communities. Um, and I think that speaks volumes because it, it, it's still not 
accessible and partly because of the supply chain issue but we haven't got enough therapists from the Bangladeshi community from the Indian community from the Pakistani community from the you know African communities that we've got here like we just haven't got enough therapists so so we and partly that will be because of stigma partly because people don't know that that's a career path that they should be progressing because the mental health awareness in our communities is so 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 low and there's a statistic i do want to share about that in a minute but um so so we have to invest in getting more people <clears throat> trained as therapists in the first place because the supply and the demand and the supply isn't matching up at the moment but, and the other really interesting thing about the work from a workplace lens is we did a piece of research with Lloyds Banking Group on um, racism in the workplace led by my colleague Farah Madhavishar and um, we discovered that black and brown people um, were more likely to seek help for their mental health and talk about mental health at work than they were in their communities. Mm, wow yeah yes so so actually there's two ways of looking at that for me i carry the the responsibility of my community on my shoulder and i feel quite ashamed that actually we haven't done more to raise awareness in our community and actually isn't it sad that our kids are more likely to go to work and talk about their mental health than at home with me or my aunties which you know i mean that's sad so but then when i look at it through my workplace ceo head on i'm like wow what an opportunity for workplaces to foster that 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 belonging by allowing people from encouraging people from black and brown communities to minoritized communities to to come to work and talk about it because we already know that they're doing more of that anyway so build on it so i just think that it's it's really important that when people do seek help um that the first second third time like it's really hard to do it the first time and if you're not lucky enough like me working in the social sector i had people constantly going go back to therapy find find the next therapist it's the shoe that fits it's you it's not going to be the first time see it as an interview so if i didn't have people like that encouraging me probably only have just done it that first time and gone actually this isn't for me and if I had I'd I, god I can't imagine what a nightmare I'd be because I'd have such little personal insight into my mental health struggles how it presents itself how I can manage mm. it I think mm. I'd be a really troubled mother I don't think I'd you know I think I would have done a bad job of lots of different things so again it's really important to get therapy right and keep trying anybody that's listening that thinks oh god i've tried it once it was a bit rubbish keep trying because when you find the right person it's it's life-changing in terms of quality of well-being yeah 100 percent. i can totally agree with that and um, that's so true and um i just i have to ask you because it's so important to us i know it's really important to you um, we've talked a lot already about kind of inequalities in mental health, but I just wanted to ask you, you know, if we're talking about this massive goal of the eradication of mental health inequalities, um, what in your view are those sort of, I mean, there's so many things, but what in your view could really make a difference um, to making that a reality? I think that I've already talked a lot about individual behaviour, and I really think that every single one of us that are working in this space 
just take a pause and just reflect on are you perpetuating systems that discriminate um, by not speaking up not like you because we, we will we've all we, there's so much growth to be done and you get stuck sometimes because you think you're doing you're in in the justice world or equality world but actually really thinking about it and then I think actually every organization needs to put in a framework and we were talking about it on at my board meeting this morning and one of my colleagues said look you know this is the framework every time we do a project we need to be monitoring in access action and impact so you need to be going are are people accessing the services or the support or the awareness or whatever it is that we're doing? What action are they taking as a result of it? And how do we find out that that action is being taken and what it is? And then what impact is that action having? So if we put that kind of frame around, framework around all the work that we're doing, I think we're going to get the data and the information and the quality of information that we're going to get in terms of what, how far up this eradication journey we are at, or are we actually doing more harm? And I think until we know that, it's going to be really hard. And that, again, is somewhere where I think the centre's got a very big role to play, and it already is doing so, is really looking at the research, the, the credibility, the what is working and getting to impact is hard. So we were saying in, in our board meeting, like, let's just start by anecdotes. Like, let's just start by the one or two stories that comes yeah. from, you know, you released this toolkit, we used it. Somebody said that actually, as a result of that, they went and got help. Like, it, it, it doesn't need to be more sophisticated, but we need to start somewhere. So that would be the, the framework that I'm going to put out there today with you, Alethea, is, you know, when let's look at access, action and impact of the work that we're doing. And then we'll know whether we're reaching the people that we need to be reaching. Yeah, thank you, Poppy. There's so there's so much there, so much there's so much food for thought there. So thank you for that. It's a really helpful framework, I think. Obviously, we've talked about um you accessing therapy and uh, managing your mental health, maintaining good mental health. And I would love to know, you know, are there certain things that you do that you do to maintain good mental health that really help you? Yeah, loads. And I've, I've actually started a list again because I um, I always talk about people um, writing down their well-being toolkit. So it's a, it's, oh. it's a toolkit. So I talk about, you know, writing your stress signature down which is how does stress present itself so you know for me it's irritability headaches lack of sleep uh limited diet losing my appetite so those are the kind of things you write down in your stress signature and then your your well-being toolkit you write down the things that help and i was reflecting on this because i think it's changed quite a lot in in recent times but i haven't really properly thought about it but one of the things that has changed is my, my colleague Hannah um, um, actually coined well brought this term to my attention fitness snacking so oh yeah I know I know fitness snacking. oh okay I'm intrigued I'm intrigued so basically what what she's saying is instead of trying to fit in an hour's worth of exercise before work or after work or lunchtime when those of us that were exercising would you might actually 
get more in like 10 minutes in between meetings go for a little walk do a little yoga session do a quick 10 minute workout so it's it's snacking on fitness basically throughout your day rather oh, I than love that. Um, and and i guess it's this has come quite specifically with the fact that we're all majority of us or many of us are still working from home and you it's hard to get that one hour in but actually because of the lack of movement we're get we're seeing um an increase in sort of chronic pain so fitness snacking is something that i've started to introduce to myself in my working life and it's brilliant i love it so i do yoga in the morning most nights i'll do yoga again and then in between i'm like this week i've i've moved to brighton so i went for a little sea dip at lunchtime oh very <laughs> right. nice like, yes i managed three fitness snacks in one day so so that's something that I I I really and and yoga I mentioned like that's been part of my world for a few few years now and I, it really is the only way that I I can really center myself. Um, time with the kids in a different way is is the other thing because they've all left home now and you know whether it's Zoom calls or actually a walk and chat with the ones. So I think those are sort of con- reconnecting with family. I'm I'm trying to take my aunties and mum out once a week so we're going to do Bardi on the beach at some point oh my gosh I love that and also have you seen the film yes <laughs> okay okay I'm going to have to sort of link to that it's probably like on some YouTube channel there must be a copy of it somewhere guys if you haven't seen it it's an excellent film from the yeah. 90s yes yeah. but that's so exciting yeah so so look those are and and then eating better as well i've um i'm trying to um sort out my gut my microbiome so i've got a friend who's a specialist in this area and she's helping me to, to get the guy the right nutrients i think because i'm perimenopausal i've had hormone tests done so i'm taking it's quite interesting when, when you asked me that question before i would have reeled off like 10 things but I'm in transition at the moment because of just all the health struggles that I had late last year. You know, my mental health took a took a downward dip. My I had a, the shingles virus and was off yeah. work for three months. So I'm really trying to re-engage with what health and well-being means for me. But so those are those are some of the things that uh, are uh, are happening at the moment. If that's helpful, Alethea. That's super helpful. And I, I guess that's something about well-being, isn't it? It's like different seasons of life will, will be different things and well-being will look different. And I mean, that probably all sounds very cliche, but I think that's some truth in it. Um, but that's super helpful to hear. I love the idea, both of the stress signature and the well-being toolkit. I'm a, I'm a fan of frameworks, so this is really speaking to me. Um, Poppy, I could literally go on talking with you all day, especially about Bargy on the Beach. Uh, but we have to stop there but look um just thank you so much for your time and um yes it's been wonderful yeah it's been lovely chatting to you too thank you very much that was a lot of fun i really hope you enjoyed this episode and just a reminder that we rely on donations to fight for equality in mental health so we would love it if you could donate at centerformentalhealth.org.uk slash donate take care and see you next time